Today on Basic, Dennis Leary. I meet Peter Tolan, smashed forward to 2003, I guess, and Peter and I are developing the script about firefighters in New York. And Peter and I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to write a fucking pilot. It was so weird. It was a hardcore drama, obviously, with a lot of pain and suffering and action in it. And then a comedy tucked inside of that, because that's the way the firehouse really was. Every single firehouse I was in, it's a combination of busting balls, laughing their asses off, crazy interpersonal relationships, and then searing drama, because two seconds later when the bell goes off, you know, they're in eight blocks away saving somebody's life. We had real firefighters working on the show. A shitload of our comedy stuff came from guys who would be working a shift the night before and then show up on set and go, you're not gonna believe what happened last night. We had a cock measuring contest and a guy used the remote control from the TV because he couldn't find a ruler. We'd go, tell me what happened and we'd write it down. Hey everyone and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, former TV executive, and I think you hear me knocking. And I'm Jen Cheney, a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and I think I'm coming in. Our guest today, Jen, in full disclosure, is an old friend of mine, Dennis Leary. We actually first met at Emerson College in Boston back in the late 70s, and I'm sure he will share a few stories about me that definitely aren't true. Well, I have no doubt that the audience can't wait to hear about your undergrad shenanigans, Doug. I'm a little more interested in talking to Dennis about his early days at MTV, on remote control, and of course, his Emmy-nominated FX series, Rescue Me, which was one of the great dramas of the early days of FX and a show that we probably don't talk about as much as we should. I don't think so. All right, let's get right to our conversation with Dennis. And of course, Jen and I will be back afterwards to autocorrect any inaccuracies he may have shared about my past life. All right, Dennis Leary, welcome to the Basic Podcast. We're going to start off as we do with everybody asking you, because you're old enough. Yes. Do you remember when you first got cable television? Yes, I do. I was so broke. It was 1983 or 82, something like that. We were so broke that it was on a television. <laughs> I was living in Charlestown at the time in Boston. And uh, the guy who was the Zamboni guy at the rink there, he fenced stereos and televisions, so I got a television for cash off him. Who knows where the televisions came from? Fell off the back of a truck kind of thing. Back of a Zamboni, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and to get cable, I had a buddy in the neighborhood who was good with his hands. And he hooked up, I don't know how he did it, but he hooked up in the back of the building, and it worked. Illegal. Oh, yeah. Wow. Nice. What was the first thing you watched once you got it hooked up? Well, you guys will remember, Doug remembers because he was there, you know, how big MTV was mm -hmm. at the time. And really, at that point, there was HBO, which uh, was just getting itself going. And that was primarily comedy specials. Mm -hmm. And then Nesson, which was the local New England sports network, had started up, which is where the Bruins games were and the Celtics games at the time. So sports-wise, that was key to have. But the majority of, I mean, most of the cable at that point was just really starting out. MTV was a big thing to be able to watch music videos and sports, you know, was primarily it. So uh, you went to Emerson College, like my esteemed co-host, as I understand it. Yes. Go Lions. Yes. So I think at this juncture, what I'd like is for you to tell every embarrassing story about Doug <laughs> that you can recall. And don't hold back, you know, 45 minutes an hour. We all have time. <laughs> So whatever you need. I got to be honest with you. There's not a lot of embarrassing Doug Herzog stories. You could find way more embarrassing Dennis Leary stories than <laughs> Doug Herzog. I was going to say, Dennis was more newsworthy back then. Listen, what was really embarrassing is when you look back on it is the clothes that we wore. Because <laughs> when we first went to Emerson, it was that bridge between 
the prog rock and hippies and that bullshit and then new wave which was just about to happen when clothes got way cooler so in the beginning we all looked like idiots freshman year there's probably pictures of dennis in bell bottoms senior year it was stovepipe pants yes exactly it was elephant bells and long hair when we all first got there within literally like a year and a half everybody's completely turned the page and listening to new wave and punk rock and, and you know cutting their hair short and i mean at one point i actually had neon blue hair uh, at Emerson <laughs> and Adam Roth, who was, you know, in the comedy workshop, but was dropping out soon thereafter to join a local punk band. You know, at one point he had a, an, an orange neon mohawk. I remember this. So remember. the times changed. The great late Adam Roth, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So Dennis, did you go to Emerson to become a performer or writer or what was the plan when you were headed that way? Well, where I grew up, which is in Worcester, Mass, good old downtown Worcester, Massachusetts. You know, uh, my parents are Irish immigrants. We didn't have a lot of money. They couldn't afford to send me to college. I was a complete class clown. I went to the same Catholic school for 12 years and we tortured the nuns. We just literally, I mean, we loved going to school. We hated school, but we loved going just to torture the nuns. So I, I never did anything until this nun forced me to be in a musical, Sister Rosemary Sullivan, because they didn't have enough guys. They all, only had mostly girls. And the reason I did it was she told me I'd get out of class for at least an hour a day when they were rehearsing the musical. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll go. And I went that night to this rehearsal and you know, you had to dance with the girls because they were musical. She's like, grab her by the bosom and the rump and lift her up. And I'm like, that's tits and ass. She just said tits and ass. So I, I went in thinking, wow, all the pretty girls from all four classes in high school are in this rehearsal. And that just kind of, I got hooked on performing. That was my freshman year, the first musical I did. And I kept doing them. And a bunch of other jocks, like my brother, my older brother, and a bunch of other guys got in on the action. But that nun said to me, listen, I actually think you have some talent. And I used to take night classes at this place called Emerson College that the school sent me to take classes there. And I know somebody and they have an audition process and you can get a scholarship if you get accepted. So she set up an audition. I drove down to Emerson. I can't even remember what I sang. I had to sing a song and submit a written essay. Would love to see that, by the way. I know, right? <laughs> and enough time went by that my dad was like, listen, my dad was a mechanic at the time. He's like, listen, I can get you in as a driver at the Coca-Cola company, or you can come work in the garage. Those were the- Those are the choices. Those were the choices. And, um, and then I got a full scholarship. Wow. So- that nun saved my life. She died about 15 years ago. I stayed friends with her up until the end. She was a big fan of mine. I was obviously a huge fan of hers because she saved my life. That's great. Was that a musical theater scholarship? Well, no, it was, it was acting and writing because I applied got it. for writing and acting. So I got the full boat on both, which is how I ended up meeting Dr. Randall. That's the whole way the Emerson Comedy worked. You couldn't get a part as a freshman or a sophomore right. in a play because all the seniors who hadn't had lead roles or certain kinds of roles, they had to get the parts before they graduated. So the first year I was like, this sucks. I'm not going to get a part for like you know, another two years. And meanwhile, I was taking writing classes and Dr. Randall, Jim Randall, who was another great teacher over there. I complained to him about it. And he said, well, listen, why don't you uh, start a group, a theater group? I'll be your sponsor to the SGA to get the funding. And if you get the funding, if you guys are going to write original stuff, you could get credit for it. So that's how the Emerson Comedy Workshop happened. But Dennis, talk a little bit about falling in with 
this unbelievable sort of comedy ecosystem at Emerson that included not only yourself, but Stephen Wright and Mario Cantone, a bunch of people who went on to be great writers, et cetera. It's crazy. Like I said I, earlier, you know, the, the whole idea was I just wanted to find a way for a bunch of me and my friends, acting friends, to get on stage because you couldn't. The seniors were getting all the juniors and seniors were getting all the parts. So our goal was just to get on stage. So when we started to like send out the word, we had to put up flyers. The Student Government Association said you have to put up flyers and invite everybody to audition. So the people that came in, when you I look back on it, it's just insane. Like Lauren Dombrowski, who went on to become a writer producer on Mad TV. The late great Lauren Dombrowski. Mario Cantone. I mean, oh my God, the first time Mario came in, I can still remember his first audition. Julia Childs. He did Julia Child. He did uh, Anita Bryant. If you remember, That's she, right, was right, the, right. she was the famously anti-gay spokesman for Orange Juice. Right. And he used to do that thing about popping zits in his bathroom and his sister or father trying to get in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, people like that, we were just sort of completely blown away. Now, Steve Wright, I knew... Steve was very shy. Steve was a brilliant writer, but Steve was, I mean, just that, just as a person, he was so unique. Like, see, I loved Emerson from the moment I arrived the first day like on campus and I started to meet these people. I was like, this is the fucking place. This is all crazy. I mean, I meet Adam Roth and five minutes later, we're jamming and coming up with comedy songs in his dorm room, you know, at hundred Beacon street, the same day you're, you know, you're working on a bit, about Anita Bryant with Mario Cantone. I just thought it was amazing. The talent in that group, John Tenike, who went on to work on remote control. Oh, also on remote control, um, yeah. It was an astonishing group of people. And then as the years went on with the comedy workshop and the comedy program there, David Cross, uh, Laura Kuyper, Bill Burr. Burr. I mean, just every fucking turnover of every class, you were like, who the fuck is this person? This is even crazier than the last one. It was really great. So what you're describing is a really like collaborative sort of experience, Yeah. but you would eventually start doing stand-up, which is, yes. you know, definitely more of a solo kind of venture. How did you like make that transition? How did you know that you wanted to do stand-up? Well, my two biggest comedy heroes were George Carlin and Richard Pryor, you know, especially Pryor to me was just still Pryor is the greatest stand-up comedian ever, hands down. I don't think anybody will ever beat him. Not because he's just a great comedian, but he was a great mimic. He was a great physical comic. His social and political commentary was unbelievable. His honesty in terms of opening. Anyways, so that was always on my mind. And I thought about stand-up. I'd done a couple, a lot of solo pieces in the comedy workshop shows, you know, that bordered on stand-up. And some stuff where I would talk directly to the audience. So I had a feel for it. And we graduated that first comedy workshop class in 79. And within a few months, Lauren Dombrowski and Mario go, hey, you're not going to believe this, but Stephen Wright, is doing stand-up comedy at a Chinese restaurant in Cambridge. And I was like, first of all, what are you fucking talking about? There's this guy named Lenny Clark, and he hosts this talent show. And they have all kinds of singers and everything else. So I go to this fucking Chinese restaurant, and Stephen Wright gets up in front of like 200 people and is fucking killing. So honestly, in the seat of my being, he lived right next door to me in the building next door to me. He was living with the Ball brothers. Remember the That's Steve right. Ball and Jim Ball? <laughs> so I went home that night and I said to Steve, like, what the fuck? And he was like, yeah, I know. It's weird. <laughs> I was like, it's beyond weird. So I just decided to try it because of Steven. And Lauren and Mario started doing a double act at the same club. The, the Ding Ho was the name of the, the club slash restaurant. And uh, I went up and I bombed. Steve was killing. Lauren and Mario killed. I went up 
fucking bombed, right? <laughs> but Lenny Clark, who was the host, said, hey, listen, you know, just keep coming back every Wednesday night. So that's how it started. And it was just stage time because it was so impossible to get stage time in Boston. The theater scene was so tiny and closed off. It was mostly uh, out of town shows that came in, stuff like that. So I just did it to get stage time to begin with, you know. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Before I ask you more details, how did you get the remote control gig? Yeah, the way it happened was Armstrong was writing on the show, Mike Armstrong, and John Tenney from the Comedy Workshop. And Tenney was also playing little characters that would pop in to ask questions on the show. So I knew the show was happening. I heard about it from Mike and John and watched a couple of the episodes and loved it. I thought it was fucking hilarious. It was going into season two and Armstrong said, we need some guys to do other characters besides Tenney. So would you be interested in coming on and doing a character? I was like, yeah, shit, I'd love to. That would be a great idea. And one of the first things they pitched me was being Colin's brother. So the idea was you come out, whatever the question is going to be, you know, it leads to a problem with you and Colin and you, you guys always get into a fight. The battling Quins. Yeah, so, and then I ended up playing Andy, Andy Warhol, Warhol and Gunther, the magician. 
Keith Richards. Oh, that's right. right, right. Yeah, a bunch of characters. But that's how it started. Your next MTV gig, I think, made you even more famous, which was your interstitials that you would do where you would just go on rants about whatever and, and how Cindy Crawford should be all of the programming on MTV. And how did that come about? I'm going to embarrass Doug. Oh, good. The way that happened was in 1980, when I first started doing some stand-up and Lauren and Mario were doing that double act together. Steve Wright wasn't famous yet. He was still Steve Wright. Dr. Randall, Jim Randall, he was developing this comedy writing program and he started to bring in performers into the Black Box Theater, which Doug will remember is this performance space on campus. And he brought in uh, alumni first. And one of the guys he brought in was Spalding Gray, who had gone to Emerson, mm. you know, a long time before, who was doing those brilliant one man shows. I'd never seen anything like that. I went to see him do a show. I, I was laughing and when I wasn't laughing, I was thinking. And when I wasn't thinking, I was laughing again. So that opened my eyes up. In my head, the whole time I was doing stand-up, what I was really doing was trying to develop enough material to eventually turn it into a one-man show and do it theatrically. So I ended up finally doing that with No Cure for Cancer. And I did it at the Actors Playhouse in New York and got a couple of great reviews right off the bat. So it really turned the show into kind of a hit. Ted and Doug, Ted Demi. Ted Demi. Mm -hmm. came, came to see the show. The next thing I know, Ted's going like, hey, listen, Doug is going to give us a budget. He wants to take some of your stand-ups of the persona and develop some stuff. And I have an idea. And he told me this idea was, we're going to go to like Randall's Island or, or you know, some crazy location. And I'm just going to get you. And I want to take the guys from the band in the show. Because in the show, we did the asshole song and then a closing number. And I want to take the guys from the band and I'm going to set them up. They're going to be playing music and you're going to walk around in the ruins of these buildings and just rant. And I was like, whoa, how the fuck is that going to work? Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> the guys are going to be playing music and I'm just going to be ranting about what? He's like, I don't know, you know, Cindy Crawford and racism. And I'm just like, all right, if Doug's going to pay for it, I, I, <laughs> I, I did not get it. I did not get it. And then the day that we shot him, the first round of him, you know, we've gotten this van and drove out to fucking this burnt out old mental hospital. And it was cold and rainy. And he has the guys set up their amps playing guitar behind me. And he's like, just walk back and forth in and out of frame and talk about Cindy Crawford. Go. And I was like, all right. And that, I, he just kept yelling shit out. And I kept walking back and forth. And then we had lunch and then we did some more. And I was like, I literally said to Adam Roth, who was one of the guitar players in the background, I was like, Teddy's lost his mind. Like, Doug's going to fucking hate this. What is this? This is, I have no fucking. And then I saw when he cut the first couple of them, I was like, oh shit. Oh, I see. And now I get it. And those things just fucked. They, yeah, they took off. They mm -hmm. blew the, like literally overnight. One night I was me, you know, struggling, broke. I was that one man show. I got paid, I think, $120 a week because it's off Broadway at the Actors Club. You know, a second kid coming. And I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. And all of a sudden, like, I walk out of my shitty apartment on my way to the show the next day. And people are like, hey, you're the guy from MTV. And I'm like, oh, fuck. You know? <laughs> and it, it just like it went like that, you know, overnight. In a lot of those rants, you were kind of bad-mouthing the artists. Like, Not kind of. I was. Yeah, for sure. So, like... I mean, how did that work? Because I would think that some of the artists' management would have been like, hey, why? why you know, you I don't remember. We were very sensitive to, and we honestly, we were overly sensitive to not doing that to artists generally. Mm -hmm. But I think Dennis's character was so well-defined. It was like he wasn't supposed to like R.E.M. 
you know, mm-hmm. and it was funny. So I don't know what, I don't know. What were you thinking? It was completely organic. I was just going after people whose music I fucking hated. So <laughs> You hated R.E.M. that much? I hated R.E.M. Oh. It was all from the fucking heart. I'm just telling you like that song, Shiny Happy People. I mean, I, that well, they was- They don't the, like that song either. And they wrote it. The beginning of the end for me, I, I, I was like, fuck these guys and uh, Def Leppard. And I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, but it was all organic and it was true hatred. Now I get famous, right? Everything takes off and I'm famous. So I'm fucking in LA. I, I'm with Teddy actually at a restaurant. We were out there. I think we were going over budget stuff for the ref, which we were about to start shooting. And we turn a corner going to this restaurant and it's fucking Michael Stipe. Mm. R.E.M. And he's looking at me funny and I'm like, oh, this motherfucker is going to be angry. And he goes, oh my God, you're Dennis Leary. And I go, oh yeah. And he goes, thank you for making fun of that song. We didn't know what we were thinking. And you know, you finally put it into words and I'm like, holy shit. He doesn't like the song either. Right. MTV was so fucking hot at that point that if you weren't on air, you know, in a music video, which was like that, that was the meat and potatoes, right? But if you weren't like on Cindy Crawford's show, House of Style, or in the conversation on that show, or in my spots or whatever, I think you probably felt like you were off the radar a little bit, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, people, people forget, it's impossible to explain to my kids how fucking big MTV was. Yep. Mm-hmm. Forget about music. I'm just talking culturally, like pop yeah. culture. Remote control was one of the examples where it just fucking started to make fun of its of itself and the culture. Right. And I think that had such a, a sheen of hipness to it. You know, it, it can't exist anymore, but I always tell my kids, it's like YouTube, Spotify, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, all rolled into one. I yeah. see all roads came through MTV. Yeah. It, did. it started with music, but then it went to comedians and politicians yep. and sports stars and supermodels. And yeah. it just, everybody wanted to be on there. Yeah, it's true. I was rewatching those clips. I hadn't watched them in a while. And I was trying to think like, what is the modern day equivalent? Because, you know, commercials and promos, like they don't go viral, generally speaking. But that's what that was. That was a viral series of videos before we knew what viral videos were. Well, and then it was viral, but you had to go to MTV to watch it. Like, right. you go, oh my God, have you seen this guy, Dennis Leary? And yeah. there was only one place to see it. Yeah, it's right. also the power of the of the channel because it was so many people watching it on so many levels. Like people were watching it at three o'clock in the morning. People were watching it at three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, it was kids who were in school. It was giant rock stars. They were watching it. So right. it's like when you popped a bubble on that channel, everybody knew about it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's impossible to recreate how much power the network had. But also, I got to give, you know, like Doug and, and everybody else credit who was running the place, giving Ted carte blanche and just going like, yeah, go off and make these crazy spots. You know, yeah, let's do a show about um, hip hop now. They, they started doing half hour comedy hours. You know, it was like, by the way, being on an MTV half hour comedy hour was hipper than being on a network or other cable stand up show. So it was huge. They weren't paying anybody huge money, but it was fucking huge. <laughs> there, well, there was that. Yeah. Didn't even pay Cindy Crawford at first. No, didn't pay anybody. <laughs> Not a dime. You know? Not no, a because dime. They, the whole idea was you're going to become super famous, which is true, by the way. If you got on and you had a regular gig, boom. It worked out for everybody. Yeah, it did work out for everybody. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> they were cheap. The other thing I loved about MTV was, you know, it was like, yeah, we're not going to give you uh, any money for that. But hey. You want some swag? <laughs> Got some cool T-shirts right here. T-shirts, you know, uh, bags. What do you want? They're still selling swag. I just bought an MTV purse the other day. Yeah. Did you really? Yeah. There's a big movement. Yeah, I see them all over the place. You used to be able in the old days to show up at the airport 
And if you had a coach ticket, you know, you'd put your MTV bag up on the counter and they go, Oh, you, you work for MTV. You go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, oh, that's so cool. And you'd go, uh, want a t-shirt and uh, you'd pull a t-shirt out of your bag. And the next thing you know, you're, you're flying business or, or first. Hmm. I'll try that. I don't think it's going to work. In, well, in yeah. I don't think, any, I think that's done. I think that's done. <laughs> So, um, Dennis, to fast forward a little bit, obviously you did a lot of different roles on film and television, including a show called The Job that was on ABC. But from the cable standpoint, certainly Rescue Me was a huge, huge part of your career, a huge show for FX at a time when FX was still kind of establishing itself as a place for original programming. When you kind of made that deal to be on FX, like, did you even have a sense of what FX was at that point? Because it was still... So early well, days. They weren't really anywhere at that point. And um, again, going back to Ted Demi, uh, this is like 99, 98, 99. Ted was the reason the job happened. So we just got funded to do this movie Blow, right? Which I'm not going to act in. We're actually getting ramping up to start casting and pre-production on that. And Ted goes, hey, by the way, I was over at ABC talking to um, the execs over there. They love you and uh, they want you to do a, a show. And I'm like, I don't want to fucking do a network show. And he's like, remember that idea you told me? I had just done a movie called The Thomas Crown Affair. And mm-hmm. I played a cop. And my tech advisor on that was a really interesting guy who had worked at Homicide and came up as a, a New York detective and had a fucked up backstory in terms of his personal life. But now he was sort of clean and sober. And Ted said, remember you told me you wanted to do a movie based on that guy, like a comedy? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, why don't you do it as a fucking TV series? And I'm like, I don't know. So... Go back to remote control. Ken Ober had been a, in a comedy team when he was at UMass, right? That's where he went to college with a guy named Peter Tolan, who went on to create the Larry Sanders show with Gary Shandling, who was from Situate. So mm-hmm. Ober says to me, if you're going to do that, you got to sit down and meet fucking Tolan. So Ober calls Tolan. I meet Peter Tolan. Tolan says, let's do this on ABC. That's how that show starts. Mm-hmm. By the way, loved the show. I had a fucking great yeah, it's a good show. Got great critical response yeah. at the time. So when the show was dying, it was, it's funny to say this, when they were canceling it after the second season, I wasn't bummed out because I knew I loved working with Peter and I knew that I was going to do something else with Peter. So smash forward to 2003, I guess it is. And Peter and I are developing this script about firefighters in New York. And Peter and I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to write a fucking pilot and a second episode to establish the tone. It was so weird. It was a hardcore drama, obviously, with a lot of pain and suffering and action in it. And then a comedy tucked inside of that, because that's the way the firehouse really was. In my experience, from from my cousins and some guys I knew that had survived 9-11 in New York. So it was going to be a difficult sell, we thought. And Peter was pissed off at HBO about something. I can't remember. So he's like, we're not taking it to the typical places. We're going to own it. And we're going to go into a couple of new places. And I'm like, he's Peter Tolan. He's got Emmys. I don't. Right. <laughs> so he said, he said, there's a guy taken over that I hear great things about named Landgraf. And they only have one show worth noting, which was The Shield, which we loved. And I said, I don't know, man. I mean, what the fuck? I mean, where is that channel? <laughs> like, I didn't even know where the fuck it was. We sent him the script and he called up. He had three notes. Two of the notes were so genius that Peter and I went, oh, fuck, why didn't we think of that? I've never had this happen before. We went in for a personal meeting with John Langra. He spent the first 15 minutes talking to us about, I'm going to give you complete creative freedom. I want you to do the script that you wrote. I want you to you know, have freedom to do whatever you want. And I'm going to give you the big budget. You're going to need to do it. And 
I want to bring my marketing department in. He brings in the marketing department and for the next 45 minutes, they talk about how much money they're going to spend on billboards and they, they have a mocked up campaign for, for this show called Rescue Me. Peter and I walked out and went like, that I, like I've been in the movie business, that had never happened. They don't fucking show you the marketing campaign the day that they're thinking of buying your script. So that was the be all and the end all. Again, like MTV, very quickly FX, they put so much money into advertising. Right after we went on the air, we were like, shit, this is the right place to be. It was. It's so interesting that you, as you were describing kind of what Rescue Me was, that it had like a comedy tucked into a drama. Again, at that time, that probably did seem risky, but like, I feel like every cable streaming show is that. It's, it is a mix of different things. Again, we didn't think it was revolutionary. It was just organic to the setting of the show. Sure. I mean, I had a cousin who was a firefighter up in Worcester. I came to know his crew. Uh, one of my oldest friends became a firefighter when we were in our 20s in New York. So I, I knew his crews, right? Every single firehouse I was in, it's a combination of busting balls, laughing their asses off, crazy uh, interpersonal relationships, and then searing drama because two seconds later when the bell goes off, you know, they're in eight blocks away saving somebody's life or one of them is dying, mm -hmm. which is interesting. There was a person working at HBO at that time. After we made the sale to FX, they heard about the script and they'd gotten their fingers on a copy of this person calls up Peter and goes, listen, listen, listen. Okay. I know you guys didn't bring it to us, but I just read it. I think it would make a brilliant half hour. Mm -hmm. Peter goes, what do you mean a half hour? And they said a comedy because you can't have people crying one second and then laughing the next. And Peter was like, guess what? We fucking sold it already. So <laughs> that's how, how hard it was for people to wrap their brains around. It was a really yeah. great combination of like Jen said, you know, drama, comedy, action, like you mentioned. Yeah. Um, in fact, I watched a couple of scenes and get ready for this. There's a couple of those comedic scenes. I'm like, I'm not sure anybody would let you do that today. I actually watched the episode where the diversity guy comes in and. Uh, like, like so many scenes in that script, we had real firefighters working on the show on set as tech advisors and uh, and and also when we did the action scenes, these guys would be in the scenes. A shitload of our comedy stuff came from guys who would be working a shift the night before and then show up on set and go, you're not going to believe what happened last night. We had a cock measuring contest at my fucking fires. And a guy used the remote control from the TV because he couldn't get, find a ruler. Like, we go, tell me what happened. And we write it down. The diversity episode, Terry Quinn, who was our technical advisor, his crew because this is what they started to do after 9-11. They made an announcement that you could your crew can be stopped and picked up from work and taken to a diversity class where you have to take sensitivity training and your crew will be replaced and you'll be there all day. His crew got picked up and taken in and he came to set the next day and said, you're not going to believe this one. Get the pens out, write this shit down. Dennis, you've been talking here a little bit about some edgy comedy. Um, you were once roasted on Comedy Central. Yes. You produced a couple of those. Yes. Do you think like the world is still safe for roasts in 2022? You know, it's funny. I haven't even thought about it. Is that a, is that a thing they might cancel? Is one, one of the well, things? Well, I just ask you just because the Comedy Central hasn't done one in a minute. The world seems to have kind of changed a little bit. You know, what's sort of acceptable everywhere, including comedy, has kind of evolved. But listen, man, here's my thing about that, too. Let me focus just on comedians because they're famous for bitching about things when the walls close in a little bit. One of the reasons my act popped with people is because at that time, in the late 80s, before anybody knew who I was, and then once I hit, was because I was politically incorrect. I was considered politically incorrect. At right. that time, people were getting sensitive about certain issues. Also, I never wanted to be on a talk show as a stand-up comedian. 
I had no interest in that from the beginning because I, I wanted to be able to use the language the way I like to use it. But the whole idea of comedy is it goes even back to Pryor and Carlin and Joan Rivers. And those, people say, okay, there's a new rule and it says that you can't do this or talk about this. Well, to me as a comedian, I look at that and I go, great. So now we got to sidestep around these issues and find something new to say about this and push the envelope in a new way. Society's always doing that. So you talk about roast. That's really interesting because one of the great things about roasts, right? As I'm saying this as a producer and also as a comedian is watching people, professionals destroy each other up on a stage. Watching comedians get up there and just go nuts to me is fantastic. And it's a, it's a format that is evergreen. So I would say, I can't wait to see what the next roast is going to be and what Whitney Cummings or Chelsea Handler or Jeff Ross or whoever is going to say about who, you know? I love that format. Even guys, I have, like people that I'm not that interested in that are getting roasted, I'm like, I'm not fucking in it to see them. I'm actually <laughs> in it to see what these comedians say about them. Exactly. Because the one-liners are just so genius and the fucking rants are just... Like I said, pros, man. I love pros. to watch. It's home run derby for comedians because it's like one pro after the other. Just that's a good it. analogy. I like that. I'm going to use that, Dennis. I'm stealing that. <laughs> Steal it. Steal it. Are there projects you're working on now? Anything that's going to bring you back to basic cable in the near future? Oh, that would be really interesting. Listen, man. I still I love Landgraf, and we've we're always talking about stuff. I think in his mind, he wants me to go back to FX, which I would love. I would love working with the guy. I haven't found the idea that clicks yet. So I'm just developing right now and writing. In the meantime, though, we can we can see on Law and Order, right? Which one? Law and Order, Organized Crime, which is last season. You play um, a good guy or a bad guy, Dennis? I play a complicated bad guy who's an old friend of Chris Maloney's, and I fucking had a blast. We had a blast. Together. He's a hilarious guy. He's a hilarious actor. He's a great actor. We really clicked. The two characters were great. And I'm also in the last run on Animal Kingdom, which is the final run for the mm. show, which is airing now. The final season is just insane. The writers did a fucking amazing job coming up with the final run for these oh, characters. Wow. So you have been busy. Yeah, man. I've been saying this. It's crazy. The entire pandemic I was shooting. Right. So Because Animal Kingdom started and then stopped. And then we had to go back and, you know, just this last summer we finished. I was shooting um, the Fox limited series, the Moody's. Mm-hmm. And then I went into the Law and Order shoot, which those shoots are insanely long and complicated. Right. So I basically spent the last three years shooting. Did you, you ever know? get COVID? No, never got wow, COVID. good for you. Me neither. I know. Did you ever get it, Jen? I think I might have had it in the beginning, but I had no way to verify it. So I'm going to continue right. saying I didn't. Did you guys get boosted in Vax and all that stuff? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So I just got my second booster because they're saying that people over 50, because of the new variants, you get boosted. Did you get double boosted? I'm double boosted, baby. I still can't get my second one. Why? Because I'm not 50 yet. Oh. I have to wait a month. <laughs> oh. I'm one of those guys. Listen, you tell me you got you got a fucking vaccine and it's available down the street at the thing. I'm fucking in. Shoot me. You know? <laughs> All right, Dennis, we got one last question for you. Yes. Other than your own. Yeah. Do you have an all-time favorite basic cable show? Oh, my God. I'm going to tell you, it's a boring answer, but it's true. I'm just speaking now as more as an actor, I think, than anything else. But The Sopranos. I mean, I watch a lot of stuff, man. And I watch stuff because my friends are in it sometimes. And I watch stuff just because I fall in love with it. That performance by Gandolfini and Edie Falco. Those two people alone, that relationship on that television show. I mean, I watched the old cable way, Sunday nights at nine o'clock. I didn't DVR it. I watched it like it was live TV for the entire run they had. It's, it's still, I go back and watch it sometimes now. Just give, they should have gotten every fucking award 
They should have gotten an Oscar. That's how good that show was, not just an Emmy. I have one more ancillary question that I now I think I know the answer to. If you could play a character in another show that you were not in, what would you like to play? Well, I love to play bad guys. So I would love to play a fucking bad guy on Barry. Do you guys watch Barry? Oh, oh yeah. Barry is so good. Yeah. yeah. First of all, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Hater, but I'm a, after I started watching that show, I'm such a fucking big fan of all the other people on that show. That actress who plays his girlfriend, I mean, mm -hmm. what the fuck? Yeah. That's like one of those shows I'm like, fuck, I want to be in the show. I hate to call people up because it's like begging, like, hey, can I be in your show? <laughs> like, now I'm doing it in public on your podcast. Hey, Bill Hader, it's Dennis Leary. I love you. Can I please be on Barry? Thank you. <laughs> Did you guys watch um, Our Flag Means Death? No, I need to watch that. Not seen it either. Oh, my God. That's not, I'm going to go publicly. Please make sure this is on the podcast. I just want to <laughs> tell those guys I love Our Flag Means Death. Please let me be a pirate on that show. Please. <laughs> a guest pirate. And I know Chris Maloney loves that show because we talked about it. He wants to be a guest pirate too. Please let us be guest pirates on the show. Thank you. All right. Taika Waititi has been notified. Uh, I'm so, I can't believe I'm begging him. Yeah. him and Hader. Oh We're going to let God. you go before you soil yourself, man. Uh, yeah. Dennis Leary, thanks so much for being on basic. We appreciate it. And uh, we hope to see you soon. It's more fun than I ever thought I'd have talking to Doug Herzog. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. That means, you know what, Jen? That means it's because of you. Yeah. No, it's not. I can, no, no, I can tell. Nobody has to say it. Obviously, Doug's just along for the ride because Jen's really running the oh, show. Yeah, yeah, she's got all <laughs> that. Exactly. Yeah, right. All right, guys. Uh, we'll do that. Dennis, man, great Thanks, to see guys. you. Thanks. Thank you so Appreciate much. Appreciate it. Doug, see you soon. Bye, right, man. See you in the playoffs, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, Dennis Leary, too bad he was just so unenergetic and didn't have really strong opinions or thoughts on anything you didn't really bring it <laughs> <laughs> i mean dennis has had that kind of energy as long as i know him which is a long time and emerson is not at school with a football team i say we turn out comedians not quarterbacks and you know dennis was like the big man on campus when i got there i mean he was the star of this thing called the emerson comedy workshop which he referenced and he just had like this spotlight on him at all times he seemed like a star to me even then and so somehow it's not surprising he ended up being one. He sort of always had it. Right. I guess it would have been hard to sense this at that age. But did you get the sense that he also had it in him to be like a dramatic actor? You know, hearing him talk about that was interesting to me because I only, you know, I would see him in the Emerson Comedy Workshop and some of the stand-up stuff he would do. He actually also had like a little comedy troupe that he formed off campus at one point called the Honey Lounge. Um, so I didn't really know him as a dramatic actor, honestly. And it wasn't until he started doing films like in the, I guess, the early 90s that I began to realize, oh, wow, this guy, not only is he really funny, but like he can really act. Yeah, I just, I thought it was really interesting just hearing him talk about Rescue Me and just sort of the concept of it was really capturing how actual life is where sometimes things are funny and sometimes they're heartbreaking and sometimes there's very little time passed between those two really extreme emotions. And just the idea that that was perhaps scary to some of the the network people, not at FX, but you know, he talked about someone at HBO wanting it to be a half hour comedy instead. And I just think that that sort of model of shows that are capturing real life, that run the gamut emotionally, that are hard to kind of pin down. Are they a comedy or are they a drama? Like that is sort of how so many shows are now. Yeah. 
And it was a really difficult time. I mean, if you go back to when Rescue Me went on, which was post 9-11, and it really adhered to that old adage, tragedy plus time equals comedy, the sort of jumping off point was arguably one of the most tragic things that ever happened, certainly in my lifetime or anybody's lifetime. And they managed to find great drama in it, but also a lot of great comedy, dark comedy, but great comedy nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think about his character, you know, Tommy Gavin? He's not mentioned usually like in the same breath as Tony Soprano or Walter White or Don Mm -hmm. Draper. But for that era of these sort of premium scripted dramas, he was a pretty great character, pretty complicated guy, maybe a little more grounded than those guys who were so extreme and over the top over time. But I don't know. I think Tommy Gavin was a great premium cable character. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like the conversation about the quote unquote, like golden age, whatever you want to call that period in the 2000s, when The Sopranos was big and all these kind of anti-heroic dramas were big. There are certain shows that often just kind of get sidebarred a little bit from that conversation. I feel like Rescue Me is one of them. The Shield, maybe to a lesser extent. The other big show FX had at that time was Nip Tuck that people don't talk about quite as much anymore. And that was a really big deal, kind of launching Ryan Murphy, among other things. So there are a lot of shows that were really high quality, interesting characters. But for whatever reason, we tend to focus a lot on The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Mad Men and not talk about some of those other shows as much as we should. And it ran seven seasons. It did. It was on for a long time. Which was, I think, longer than almost all Mm -hmm. of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was uh, it was great to have uh, Dennis Leary here and catch up with him. I hope you enjoyed it, too. And we look forward to you joining us next time on Basic. Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Chaney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the Sirius XM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow follow the show so you never never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.